everyone. Welcome back to the Debugged Podcast. Today, we have two very special guests with us. Um, we have Rick Lane, who is a tech policy expert, child safety advocate, and the founder and CEO of Iggy Ventures. Iggy advises and invests in companies, projects, and public policy initiatives that can have a positive social impact. Prior to starting Iggy, Rick served for 15 years as the Senior Vice President of Government Affairs for 21st Century Fox. Before joining 21st Century Fox, Rick was the Director of Congressional Affairs focusing on e-commerce and internet public policy issues for the United States Chamber of Commerce, the world's largest business organization. We also have David Rosenblatt with us. David Rosenblatt has founded and scaled businesses in Silicon Valley, Wall Street, and Israel across the energy, technology, and healthcare industries. His experience includes being a co-founder of Quicken Loans at Intuit and a managing director at BlackRock. In Israel, David co-founded the country's first utility-scale solar company that remains a leader in the industry today. David focuses on operating and investing in early stage companies. David holds an MBA with distinction from Harvard Business School, a JD from Northwestern University Law School, and a BS with honors from Pennsylvania State University. David and Rick, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? We're doing great. Absolutely wonderful. Thank you for having us. Of course, thank you so much for being here. Well, super excited to hear what goes on with investing um, and everything that goes on with that. So do you mind talking a little bit about like what your career journey was to get to this field and like what is the one thing that you love and cherish about what you do? I ran out of college. I happened to be fortunate enough to work up on Capitol Hill as a young staffer in appropriations um, in the late 80s and was dealing with issues around funding this entity and thing around called the information superhighway, uh, which later became the internet. And I also did education funding. And so I saw a world where we could combine education and technology in this new interconnected world. And what a grand you know, experiment that would be for opening up schools around the world um, and people to other people all across the world. And after I left the Hill, I went to Weill Gotchel, um, where I actually met, you know, David, um, as we were young, young Democrats together at that one point. Um, and we started talking about how we can change the world with this new and innovative technologies. And then from there, I went to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, um, focusing on tech policy. And I basically have worked on every major technology policy issue for the past 30 years that have come, come through Congress. Wow. And then when I left News Corp uh, in 21st Century Fox, um, I wanted to really get back to my roots of entrepreneurialism and started a company called Iggy Ventures and began working with David um, and others on investing in these amazing startups that are we think that might really change the world. Uh, as for me, um, I, I saw my father worked for a company for 30 years. And as much as it was a wonderful experience for him, I realized that was the opposite of what I wanted to do with a career. I wanted to be an entrepreneur, um, except at that time, entrepreneurship was like a dirty word. And uh, because and most people actually didn't even know the word. So when I went to Penn State, as an example, I formed the Entrepreneurship Club and I had to go through like multiple uh, bureaucratic processes because nobody could understand why students would want to form companies. Um, and what, what that convinced me of was we, I was probably on the right path. In other words, if nobody's doing it, that's exactly what you want to be doing if you see value. So then the goal was to become somebody that could not only do early stage companies, but stay with a company through its as it grows and be ultimately a leader in that company at a larger scale. 
And so I started to look at all the all the different skill sets one needs. And that's why I became a lawyer and why I went to business school, because you have to know sort of both the inner workings of a company as well as just strategic things, but most importantly, how to execute. And so I got experience, um, whether it be through Intuit or other uh, interesting companies like on Wall Street with BlackRock, um, to do exactly that, which was have skills that are broad based, that can manage uh, enterprise when it's small and also when it's large. Uh, and then the last part about it was uh, I'm just a curious human being. So uh, doing it in various industries is very uh, appealing to me. So healthcare, energy, technology, which are huge industries um, and always changing, uh, became something that was just very appealing. And that's the career that I chose. That's absolutely incredible for both of you. And I want to ask now, um, now that you're in kind of like the VC field, like when you're looking at a startup, what metrics do you use to evaluate whether or not it's going to succeed? Like you do so many different industries. Like, are there any commonalities that you find between industries or like, do you think it's specific? Like, how do you, how do you figure, how do you predict the future basically? So it's funny. A lot of people try and predict the future. Uh, I once met an entrepreneur. Um, I didn't really buy into what he was doing, but, but one of my friends did, which he said he could predict the future. He could predict the winners and losers. Um, he couldn't. So nobody can as much as anybody thinks. So anybody who has confidence or lacks confidence and is listening to this, it's wonderful if you have confidence. And if you lack confidence, don't be intimidated by the people who have confidence. There is nobody who knows the future. Having said that, the age-old question comes down to, if you had an A-plus idea, um, but a C-level team, like you know, just an average team, or you had an A-plus team and a C idea, which one would you prefer? Would you prefer the best idea with an average team or a great team with an average idea? And almost universally, it's to have the better team. So when you look at young companies, you're really looking at the people. Because if you have a good idea, you can badly execute it and fail. Or you can have a really great team who figures out a way, if it's not going well, to pivot to something that will go well. And there's tremendous companies, multi-billion dollar companies today that exist because you know, they pivoted. The, the, car, the, uh, the largest car uh, manufacturer in the world, Toyota, actually started out as a sewing machine manufacturer. So wow. great teams change the world and that's what we look for and what i look for in companies is i try to figure out where public policy is heading what issues are elected officials trying to solve and what issue issues are out there in the world that need to be solved and are there companies that are developing new products and services that can help solve those problems uh, without a legislative solution and finding that mix of great ideas and a great team. And that's why David and I, I think work well together because David's a far better, has a far better ability of finding, looking at the, what I always call the engine of the company. Um, and I'm looking at how it looks on the street, um, combining those two. So if you have a great engine and a company that is out there solving a real public policy issue and a problem, then you have the perfect marriage. And if you find those two, then they can do great things. That makes a lot of sense. And bouncing right off of that, for young people who have really good ideas and think that they're, you know, they have a really good work ethic, they're willing to 
take feedback and pivot for people like that um who have a great startup idea what advice do you have for them um when they're just entering the market as like very early stage so one is i would watch shark tank <laughs> um <laughs> totally agree and and I, I laugh at it but and and, and, and it's not on an end all be all but it's funny i remember asking my daughter uh when she was in seventh grade we were talking and I said, she had, she had some business idea. So I said, so what are the questions you'd ask? She said, well, the five same questions that Shark Tank always asks. And then she rattled off five questions from Shark Tank. And I realized, my God, she learned a lot watching Shark Tank. And the question she asked, there are people who graduate business school that didn't know to ask those questions. But fundamentally, what you want to understand first and foremost is who is your customer. Always understand who you're selling to. Because a lot of times you might think you're, sell you're, you're making one product and you're selling it to a consumer, but you're actually selling it to the mother. The mother's the decision maker in the family, not the child. Or you think you may be making a product for the mother, but it's the child who influences the mother. So you're really trying to appeal to that influencer. So you have to know who your customer really is so that you do that. And the second thing I, I would say, just to keep it really simple, is um, know the market size. A lot of people end up doing a lot of work and getting incredibly emotionally attached to something which can only be a feature of a product, but not big enough monetarily to be a product, right? So if, so if you think about it, the camera right now on, on any mobile phone is a feature of the phone. But it used to be, you know, up until 10 years ago that people would go and buy little cameras all the time. Now nobody does that. It's just a feature. So nobody would really create a little miniature camera right now because it's already on your phone. And so you don't want to end up investing time, energy, relationships on the wrong thing. So know your customer and know your market. And I would just give an example of that, that um, David and I learned together when we started a company called Cyber Sports, um, which was became the leading recruiting software for college and university sports programs. And we thought the people we were selling to were the coaches, the college coaches. So we'd go to these coaching events and talk to the coaches and they would be so enthusiastic about this amazing new technology that we had developed and couldn't wait to you know, get it um, installed into their systems and into their athletic departments. And then we wouldn't hear anything. And so we'd call, not hear anything. What we finally realized is that our customer wasn't the, the coaches, it was the recruiting secretaries. And the recruiting secretaries didn't like it because they thought we were going to put them out of a job. And so once we realized that our real customer was the recruiting secretaries to make their lives easier through the recruiting process of managing all the recruits and the hundreds of recruits that are going through the process and transcripts and letters and everything, all of a sudden we started selling more and more of our product. So that was a pivot. So you would think it was the college coaches. And again, they maybe were the ultimate decision makers, but we first had to get through the real decision maker, which was the recruiting secretaries. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. And honestly, as someone who grew up on Shark Tank, like I, I love the fact that it's actually a very useful show to watch. Um, but I mean, I really want to flip the question now. Um, what about young people who are just interested in going into venture capital? Um, like, should they be watching something like The Profit? Or like, is there is there anything that, um, any like advice or things that they should start keeping in mind or career paths or journeys, something like that? 
I, you know, I, I don't think there's any one path. It's sort of like when people ask me, you know, how did you become a lobbyist, you know, and get involved in all these tech issues? Everyone has their own story. So there's no one path. You know, David went to law school and Harvard Business School, and I graduated from Holy Cross with an undergrad degree. But I always felt I got my grad school working on Capitol Hill for five years, which I think is one of the best undergrads you could ever go to. Because um, you learn so much and get exposed to the best and the brightest in the world on policy issues and technology. Um, so everyone has their own path of how they get there. But I think, you know, before one of the things that I'm really focused on with a couple of my companies, my startups that I'm invested in, um, as is David, um, is financial literacy. So one of the first things to understand is how to manage money. And, and one of the things that we talk about, and I always like to give, um, you know, you have, we always learn about, as you get older, bad cholesterol and good cholesterol. Well, there's Bad debt, you know, bad credit and good credit, right? Bad debt and good cre- debt. And so you need to learn a little bit financial skills, literacy skills, to understand how investments matter, where you're investing in, and then understanding exactly, you know, what is that return on investment? Is it worth to put a million dollars? One of the companies Dave and I talked about, we thought, and I thought was a clear road to, you know, success because I was like, there's only one company, they have a monopoly in this one area and we have a technology that we think we can beat that one monopoly and but looking at the cost of entry was you know going to be a million dollars to get into it and yes okay still we you know we can compete but as david pointed out you know looking at it from his perspective as an investor he said yes but that monopoly can lower the price to zero and wait us out and then what do we do Right. Or are the customer just going to leverage us, you know, to use us to leverage against their current supplier and try to lower their price and then we're out in the cold. So there's some things that you just have to learn as you're you know, kind of going through the process, but it's not always just a clear path. It's just trying to understand finances and understanding your investment strategies. Yeah, to become a venture capitalist is a lot of people's goals. So they want to sit back, have people present to them, and then allocate and invest money. I, I want to I want to really get realistic with people. If, if you're a good venture capitalist, you're doing a lot more than just deciding where to put money. There are bad venture capitalists, and I have met and worked with them. Uh, I won't name them, but but where where all they do is give money and then expect results. Those are the worst. Um, the good ones get get in get into in, get into the car with you, so to speak, and, and ride the journey um, and figure out okay, what resource can we bring? What expertise can we um, leverage in order to get you the, no- the knowledge in order to be more successful more quickly? So, in order to become a venture capitalist, what you want to do is you want to build some skills or knowledge or expertise such that you, when you are giving capital and making investments, can lend that expertise. And that expertise can be like what Rick has, which is you know, there's almost nobody better if you have to do anything on Capitol Hill. Um, it might be you know friends of mine who know biotechnology that are incredible. That is a real skill set. They know nothing about business, but they know everything about you know tech, you know biotechnology. Um, and and then how to leverage that. So it could be a network also. So a lot of people they think. Oh, well, they went to do a job that's, that's, you know, doing business development or marketing to something. But those people end up meeting everybody within the industry, building great relationships. And guess what? A venture capital firm then says, how do we get deal flow? Who do we know that knows everybody? Well, it's exactly that person. 
So when you're thinking about getting into venture capital, you want to have common fundamental skills of how do companies get built? How do they become successful financially? But you want to make sure you're bringing something to the table. You're bringing value. It can be a wide swap. I'll give you one last example, which I'm I'm surprised at. Everybody, you know, as as parents, because Rick and I are parents, you know, you and everybody listening has hopefully as parents. But there, people might be crashing down on you because you're playing video games. And now esports is a multi-billion-dollar uh, industry. So there are a lot of people who, by 17, 18, 19 years old, have made millions of dollars off of playing video games. Uh, and so you never know where that skill set's going to be. So the recommendation is have the basic skills of financial literacy, like Rick said, but understand that you bring something special. And if you don't bring something special, figure out what you're passionate about, go after that and make it special. That's really great advice. And honestly, like I, that motivated me to pursue my passions more and make them more special. Um, I just wanted to ask you one last question. Um, since again, like we are doing this for the Congressional App Challenge and that's all about like making apps for social good. I wanted to ask like, what kinds of trends have you seen when it comes to technology and social good? Um, and what can we expect as well as like, how can students kind of like make a niche for themselves? So I, I think we are living in a special moment. Um, you know, Rick and I know each other a long time. And when we used to say these things, uh, people would look at us square eyed, like you're, 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 you're not being honest with us. And what we always used to say, because we, we did nonprofit things. One of, one of the first, actually the very first company we ever formed was a nonprofit. Um, and, and we would go to these wealthy people because the nonprofit needed money to operate. And we'd say, can you please give a donation and support us? And there are people who were very um, getting a lot of press. So they were always in the press as being, you know, very community minded and good people. But behind closed doors, they were turning us down. They weren't helping us. And so we realized that the public persona and what really happens can be very different things. So you, you must, first of all, if you want to do good in the world, you have to say you will, you will, you'll be, you will be willing to um, keep that worldview of doing good of that motivation to do good, no matter what bad people or disingenuous people you meet, uh, because you will meet them and you will want to like, it will, it will kill some spirit in you. You have to overcome that. So that's first and foremost. The, the, the second part is, is in today's world, you have two things going on. You have ESG, which is environmental um, uh, uh, society and, and governance, um, which is really the idea that says companies should be measured on, on their public, good to the to the world um, and big Wall Street firms are sponsoring that. The other thing that's happening on the other end is on the, the entrepreneurship side. Everybody doing entrepreneurship wants to show that they're also giving back. Now, it can be a for profit entity. So I have a company, for example, the one that you mentioned in Israel, we built lots of solar fields. When we started um, building solar fields that were really huge, people laughed at us because um, it wasn't cool. Like now when everybody listening goes, of course there's solar. But if you, if, if you ask your parents 15 years ago, it wasn't like that. And what we did as one of the founding things was we gave a percentage of the company uh, to an environmental institute, which brings Israelis and Arabs together to learn about environmental science. And nobody was sponsoring the school. So we thought if we could be successful, then some of the money from our company would grow that school. And so even though we were a for-profit company, we ended up 
creating a whole student body that really right now is all over the Middle East and every country um, of environmental scientists. So there's always a way that you can give back at any stage of the company if you're willing to and where if you keep your worldview and you fight the people, quite frankly, who don't want you to really do that. And I would just say a couple last thoughts. Um, one, when you're looking at your what you want to do, try to find something that you truly do love. I mean, I think that's critical. Um, you just do it better. I love public policy and I love technology. Um, people always say I'm sometimes over-enthusiastic about those things, but I truly love it. But there's also limitations and, and it's the three T's, time, talent, and treasure. And so when you're looking at what you're going to do, there's two of them you can always increase. You can always increase your talent by either hiring somebody who's really, really smart or being uh, best friends with somebody who's really smart like David. Um, you can always increase your treasure. You can find outside investors. You can you know, raise money. There's other ways. You can always increase your treasure. But the only thing you can't increase is your time. There's 24 hours in a day. And you only have a certain amount of time on this earth. And so the most precious thing that you can offer when you're starting a company or investing in a company is your time. And that's what Dave was talking about. Like when you're investing yourself as a looking at where do I want to spend my money? It shouldn't be just of where you want to invest your money, but where do you want to invest your time? Because that's the only thing that you will never get it back. Um, and so to start looking you know, at focusing on the three T's is critically important. The other thing that's critically important, and I think as we get older and we've gone through this, I think is trust. Um, you know, one of the things that people forget is your reputation. And if you don't have a solid reputation, if you haven't treated people in a nice way throughout your career, it will come back and haunt you. And I think one of the things is, again, you can be a tough business person. You know, I always like David on my side of the table, but he's one that has like one of the biggest hearts, one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. Um, and I probably shouldn't say that publicly because he, but he is like an amazing individual, but he's also trustworthy. You know, I, I trust him with everything. And I think people get that feeling when they're working with you, that it's all about trust and relationships. So when I go up to Capitol Hill today and I'm working on a policy issue or I, we just did this major event on Capitol Hill on financial literacy and the the barriers to getting credit um, in in for the unbanked and underserved. And I went and reached out to people to help on this. I had people coming out of the woodwork to help because they knew that I was passionate about it, but they also knew I was doing it for the right reasons. And that's always, and that will just come across. So if you, it makes you happier, you know, you look at all the people who have a lot of money and they seem so unhappy sometimes because they probably didn't make the money for the right reasons. They just made money to make money. If you're making money to do good, and to make and doing, as we like to say, do, you know, doing well by doing good, it's so much more gratifying. You don't have to have massive returns, but if you have returns and you feel good about it, it is so much more satisfying than buying a, a brand new car. And sometimes you, so don't get focused on just making the money, but doing good. I think you're gonna be so much happier and your life is gonna have so much greater meaning. The judge, you can judge, nobody has to judge you. You know always whether you're doing the right thing and you're doing it well or not. And the reason you know that is, do you sleep at night? If you sleep at night from not when you're just young, but all through your life without any tension because your brain is not nervous about something or anything else and you're taking care of what you're supposed to take care of, you're keeping your commitments, 
you're doing things honestly. You don't have to remember what you said to somebody because you're always saying the, the truth. Then you sleep like a baby all, all the time. The people who can't sleep, I mean, there's other reasons why people can't sleep, so I'm not trying to, to, to download that. But, but, but metaphorically, if you sleep well at night, then you're doing well. And that's a test because only you know what's inside your heart. And that's, that's the key. Be honest with yourself. That's incredible advice. And thank you so much. What a wonderful positive note to end on. Um, but thank you so much, uh, Rick and David, for joining. Um, I really, really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to come onto the podcast and talk to the Congressional App Challenge community. Um, it's really awesome. Uh, with that being said, any last thoughts or words you both wanted to add? I would say congrats and thank you for participating in this congressional challenge. Um, it's wonderful that you've taken time to develop new apps out there and, and I'm looking forward to seeing what you have developed and just, you know, keep driving, you know, just ensure, as I said earlier, just, you know, don't give up. You're going to get a lot of no's in life, um, but don't let that discourage you. Yeah, no, I want to say it's really impressive that all of you are already participating in this you're already ahead of the game. Now just stay ahead. That's great advice. And I'm sure they'll take that to heart. So thank you so much. Really appreciate that. With that being said, I'll now pop it over to the next segment of the podcast. Hi, I'm Meryl and welcome to the Tech News Roundup, where we'll brief you on anything and everything that's happened in the world of tech in the past two weeks. A shockwave of technology company stock failings have caused a rustle in the tech and business world, also hurting startup valuations and resulting in some large layoffs. Some more quick headlines. Washington, D.C.'s Attorney General is suing Mark Zuckerberg over violations of the Consumer Protection Procedures Act and data misuse from the Cambridge Analytica Facebook scandal. The lawsuit draws from initial allegations all the way from 2018 and claims that Zuckerberg was personally involved in failures that led to the Cambridge Analytica incident and the exposure of users' data. TikTok is ramping up its competition with Twitch, YouTube, and other rival platforms with the launch of a new feature, TikTok Live Subscriptions, a program that will allow creators to generate recurring revenue via payments from their top fans. The feature is going into beta testing later this May and would grant exclusive subscriber content with payoffs comparable to Twitch earnings. In international tech news, Airbnb will be removing its services from China as the country's lockdowns have cut the amount of revenue it provided for the rental service to less than 1%. All listings in the country will be taken down by the summer, though the company will still try to target Chinese citizens aiming to travel abroad. In the UK, Clearview AI, a facial recognition-focused company, has been fined by the Information Commissioner's Office for breaching data privacy laws and has been ordered to delete all data collected from UK residents. The company sources images for its database from social media sites and all over the internet, allowing clients to search for people in its collection. Though the company claims all its sources are public, the government alleges that the usage of that data does not follow rules regarding user consent and lawful retainment of that data. On the Ukraine crisis, Twitter has now upped its misinformation game, flagging wide-reaching posts that contain inaccurate information about the conflict in order to prevent the information from being reshared. The company said that it would rely on multiple sources to determine when claims are misleading. Strong commentary and first-person accounts are among the types of tweets that would not be challenged by the policy. 
Despite these measures, the new feature faced concerns about free speech internationally. In some good news, scientists have found potential in subsea internet cables to detect earthquakes and offer more insight into changing ocean currents as a result of climate change. Vibrations, pressure, and temperature changes affect, by a very small amount, the speed of light as it travels through internet cables, which extremely sensitive instruments can then detect. Google was involved in the research, as well as the University of Edinburgh, the British Geological Survey, and the National Meteorological Institute in Italy. There is a variety of scientific knowledge about underwater and ecological changes as a result of global warming that can be gained from the new technique. That wraps up today's roundup. We hope you enjoyed and got a dose of what's been happening in the world of tech. I'm Meryl, thanks for listening. Now back to you, Meta. And that's that. Thanks so much to our tech news expert. And thank you so much to our tech fans and listeners. This has been the Congressional App Challenge Debugged Podcast. Be sure to check us out on all podcast streaming platforms. And if you want to hit up our social medias, check out the Congressional App Challenge on Twitter and Instagram. I'm your host, Medha Gupta, signing off. Thanks for listening. Bye.